This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. This week, we're back. After a two-week hiatus, we return to a world changed and also very much the same. Before we went off the air, we'd planned to have as our guest Cindy Levy, editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine, the monthly totem for 12 million loyal readers. Cindy had done an interview with President Obama for her October issue, and we were going to catch up with her before the polls opened to get her take on how women saw the race. Then Sandy arrived in the Northeast. It demolished thousands of homes and shuttered businesses in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. It canceled the marathon, which Cindy planned to run, and it blackened lower Manhattan, leaving me, my wife, and two kids in the dark, forcing us to flee upstate. The rest is history. Sandy comes and goes. Mayor Bloomberg and Governor Christie become a constant presence on the TVs still with power. President Obama flies up. Mutual admiration is expressed. Bloomberg overtly expresses Obama, citing climate change. Christie does so visually. The power comes back to Manhattan five days later, and then Election Day. 332 electoral votes for Obama, 206 for Romney. The popular vote also goes to the president, 51 to 48. What went wrong? As I haven't been shy of saying, I liked and respected Governor Romney. He wasn't my candidate, but his polyoptic presentation was much better than John McCain or Bob Dole. People like Adam Belmar, Will Ritter, Garrett Jackson, Charlie Pierce, they deserve a huge amount of credit for giving the guy a stage on par with the president. And that first debate, it struck fear in the hearts of Obama voters everywhere. But beneath the surface, all wasn't beautiful in Boston. On Polyoptics, we like to get into the weeds, and we will later on with John Ekdahl as we break down Orca, the project name for the Romney ground game that was thrown for a loss on November 6th. But first, we welcome to our microphone Cindy Levy. As I said, each month, 12 million people open Glamour magazine, more than 98% of any other book on the stands. It's been a part of American culture since launching in 1939 as Glamour of Hollywood. And Cindy's been a part of Glamour for most of her career since graduating from Swarthmore, a year after me. During the last two election cycles, the Obama campaign shrewdly sought out titles like Glamour to get its targeted message out to the magazine's demographic of women age 18 to 49. And this year, Cindy trekked to Portland, Oregon to meet with the president and report on their conversation over coffee. Governor Romney's campaign, they didn't reach out. And Governor Romney's remarks this week about gifts that the administration gave to young people to help win the election may explain why. But America marches on. Obama has another four years. Glamour this week honored 10 recipients as its 2012 Women of the Year. The magazine industry continues to evolve, but how will this jewel in the Condé Nast crown change with it? Things are changing in Washington, too. The U.S. Senate will be 20% female in the next Congress, leaving only 31% to match the population at large. You've written about this, Cindy. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. You had Chelsea Clinton as one of your presenters as the at the Women of the Year at the Carnegie Hall this week. Uh, talking to her backstage, do you think that uh, there's going to be a significant uptick to the 20% in the Senate? Because you also had your editor's note saying, why would you why would you run for office? 
Well, my editor's note was actually encouraging young women to run for office because they don't tend to look at it as a career that's appealing to them. And and at Glamour, we want to encourage them to do that. Um, you know, we think that government would be a better place, probably a more efficient place with a little less gridlock if it had fairer representation of women. Um, and beyond that, you know, politics, despite all its frustrations, can be a pretty satisfying job. And so we want our readers to to consider it. But yes, it was really satisfying to see the uptick in the numbers of women senators after last week's elections. Some of your honorees this year for Women of the Year include uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and also uh, Rory Kennedy and her mom, Ethel. Uh, what in your conversations with them as you selected them and wrote about them and, and reviewed their histories uh, are the sort of the takeaways for young women looking at lives in politics or in government and law? Well, it's interesting. We like to say that our awards are probably the only place that you could find Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Selena Gomez on the same stage, as happened Monday night at Carnegie Hall. Um, but, you know, young women are interested in, in a range of icons now. We wanted to show them that. As far as the selection of uh, Justice Ginsburg goes. What's interesting to me about her is how much she's really changed the world for women. And I think a lot of young women, glamour readers, probably don't realize that because Absolutely. they don't remember a day when women didn't have exactly the same rights as men in terms of being able to own property, social security benefits, everything. And High school sports. Exactly. And, and first as a trial lawyer and then as a judge and then justice, it was really Ruth Bader Ginsburg who made a lot of those changes happen. So we wanted to honor her as somebody who's blazed a trail, not just for herself, as she certainly has, but also for the rest of us. And some of those Olympians that you also had as honorees this week owe their ability to plan teams, get coaching, uh, actually make be welcomed on the U.S. Olympic team to barriers that Ruth Ginsburg is able to was able to break down even before President Clinton appointed her. Yeah, you know, they were calling this year's American uh, women's Olympic team, Team Title IX, named after the famous law that opened up doors for women in sports. And, you know, today, young girls, I have a daughter who's 10, they don't remember a time when girls couldn't play sports or didn't want to play sports. It's just part of their lives now. But, you know, that didn't happen automatically. It happened because a lot of people pushed for, for equal access. Women of the Year predates your tenure at Glamour Magazine. How has the process of picking 10 people every year evolved and what is actually bring us actually through the from the beginning of the process? I don't know if you're starting to think of 2013 now. Oh, but, yes. But in polyoptics, <laughs> we get into the weeds of how organizations like media companies will say, we've got to do Women of the Year in uh, in the fall, and how do we go about this? Well, we actually start thinking about it years in advance. So, you know, there are a couple of people who I hope will be on our stage next fall, um, 2013, who we've been talking to for a couple of years now. And, you know, the, the event started in 1990. I was actually at the risk of dating myself. Um, I was an editorial assistant at Glamour at the time. And I remember standing in the back of the room. I was too junior even to score a seat or be able to get anywhere near the winners or the stage. But it was quite a small ceremony. It was held um, at the New York Public Library, and it didn't involve any of the glitz and the glamour and the celebrity that we have attached to it now. You had no Oscar-winning actresses for the most part. You had um, you know, no celebrity presenters. There was no enormous red carpet. But what it did have and what I loved from the beginning was just this really amazing vibe. Um, and women were there to honor other women. And it was the first event that 
that had started to honor women. I mean, before that, it was really just Miss America. And, you know, Women of the Year didn't have a swimsuit competition and made a, made a point of honoring women for doing all kinds of things, you know. So, yes, actresses and singers and fashion designers, but also politicians and advocates and activists and women you hadn't heard of alongside the ones that you had. And so um, over the last 10 years during my time at Glamour, we've made the... Um, event bigger and we've made it glossier and we've you know we've expanded it in all kinds of ways it's you know very present on glamour.com and we do you know tremendous uh, television publicity with it as well but what hasn't changed I think is that sense of you know a bunch of amazing women being in one room together and cheering each other on and you know I I love that I'm a, I'm a big believer in that old Madeline Albright line that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women so um, you know there's none of that hellishness at Women of the Year. Let's hear some of the commentary from some of the honorees from this year's celebration. These young girls give me hope that a better day is coming. It's the right of every single woman to get an education. That's Charmaine, right? Yeah, that's Charmaine Obeid Chinoy, who's just an incredible woman. She's a young Pakistani filmmaker, grew up in Pakistan, but educated at Stanford and at Smith. And um, she made a movie this year, uh, actually won the Oscar this year for, for a documentary, uh, called Saving Face, and it took a look at acid attacks um, on women in Pakistan and elsewhere in the world. And um, acid is a very, you know, obviously corrosive substance that is cheap and easy to buy and very poorly regulated and used horrifyingly. But it's um, outlawed, right? Well, the, these crimes are outlawed in some but not all places. And even where they are outlawed, the laws are not always enforced. But the amazing thing about Charmaine's movie is that it didn't just call attention to this. It actually has succeeded in beginning to change some of that lack of enforcement. And um, particularly in her native Pakistan, these crimes are taking much more seriously now. And, you know, Charmaine, when she was on stage at Carnegie Hall, made a point of saying that, you know, no matter what culture you live in, you know, Pakistan or the United States or anywhere in the world, so much of what you are able to do as a girl is up to your parents and that her parents made a decision that they were going to fight for her right to be educated and they supported her. And a lot of our honorees said that as they got up to the stage. I mean, it may sound like the most sort of obvious simplistic thing, but, you know, without that support at home, it very often doesn't happen for young girls. Let's hear someone else. Whatever your passion is, make it your day job. You just might find yourself someday standing at Carnegie Hall receiving an award for doing something that you just love to do. That's Jenna Lyons. Tell me about her. That's Jenna Lyons. She is the head designer um, at J. Crew, and she's an incredible woman because, she, first of all, she started at J. Crew as she she puts it an assistant to an assistant. She didn't even have a desk. She sat in the hall. She worked in men's knits, which she didn't even know existed before she got there, and she worked her way up to the top creative position. And during that time, J. Crew has gone from being you know just a sort of basic catalog company to really being a major fashion powerhouse worn by. Michelle Obama, Beyonce, you know, tons of celebrities, but also an incredible uh, business story. It's expanding internationally and, you know, really taken quite seriously in the business world. And much of that is due to Jenna. And, 
she talked um, on Monday at Carnegie Hall about how she got into fashion design because she was a tall and, as she says, gawky teenager, six footer, in you know sixth grade, and she wasn't didn't always have, pretty. <laughs> no, she said she was not so cute. Those yeah. were her words, um, and she had to design her own clothes because she just couldn't find anything good that fit her. And she realized that fashion could be something that would just transform how you as a woman felt. And she thought, what an amazing job if I can make other people feel that way. Uh, You can read about all 10 of the honorees of uh, Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year in the December issue. The issue, uh, in the process of selecting the honorees, Cindy, um, are you bucketing them? Are you saying we want to have a few people from the industry, a few people from, uh, or a category from the industry, a category internationally, U.S. politics, art like Lena Dunham or entertainment? How are you sort of starting with this big bucket and then weeding it out? You know, you you think about having that diversity for sure. You know, we know we want an athlete. We know we want an artist. We know we want an entertainer. We know we want a politician. But, you know, some years there are just themes. I mean, I'll give you an example. In, in 2008, we made the decision both to honor Condoleezza Rice as she was leaving her position as Secretary of State and to honor Hillary Clinton, who had just made a run for president. And it basically came down to us looking at what had happened over the course of that year for women and thinking there is no way we can celebrate women's achievement in 2008 without honoring both these women. And, of course, we did. And it was fascinating because, uh, you know, Hillary's, some of Hillary's team said later that, you know, it was really interesting to talk to Secretary Rice's team and hear from them what the Secretary of State position that that uh, then-Senator, soon-to-be Secretary Clinton herself, was about to move into. Do you find interesting uh, in the aftermath of the campaign and the President's, President Obama's press conference this week and the, the questioning of whether Susan Rice might be qualified to be the next Secretary of State based on how she answered questions on Sunday morning news programs based on intelligence briefings that she got. It seems like some of the some of her detractors are taking only what she happened to say based on the paper that she was read that she should not be the next Secretary of State. You know, I wouldn't be in a position to really speculate about, you know, her qualifications and and that whole situation. But, you know, we honored her uh, in her in her current capacity. And, you know, we're just in the business of trying to applaud women when they you know get jobs that not enough women have had in the past. Let's hear from one of your other honorees this week. Personally, I'd also like to thank Chelsea Clinton for being so dignified, graceful, and just plain good, and giving the name we share a respectable legacy. That's Chelsea Handler, right? (laughs) Yes. Not an honoree this year, right? An honoree last Uh, year. This uh, year she presented an award. How do you pick their presenters to put for the Women of the Year? Well, we really look for somebody who has a connection to the winner. I mean, what you don't want is just that sort of rote thing that you see at too many award shows of one famous person handing an award to another famous person that they've never met before and have no connection to. We really want that, you know, that that warm, intimate connection. And so... um, Chelsea Handler presented this year to Lena Dunham, the creator and star of the HBO show Girls, which is the biggest TV debut of the year. Last year, when Chelsea herself won, her award was presented by Jennifer Aniston, and they're quite close friends. And, you know, it just adds it adds an element of specialness to the evening. In fact, speaking of the Clintons, when uh, Maya Angelou was our Lifetime Achievement winner three years ago, President Clinton was there to present her with her award. 
So uh, we went to Swarthmore at the same time in the late 80s, so listeners can do the math. And uh, <laughs> uh, as I try to watch Lena Dunham's Girls on HBO this year, I find myself, you know, uh, having great difficulty trying to connect to this. Now, you're, you're, you've been editor-in-chief of, of Glamour for as long as you have been. How do you stay current with what someone like Lena just coming out of college and striking it so perfectly in this series and understanding what she is trying to convey through her art? Well, it's pretty easy because I work with an entire staff of women, most of whom are under 30. (laughs) Plus, I'm a TV junkie, so I don't get anywhere near enough sleep because I'm constantly up, you know, plowing through my DVR of girls or new girl or whatever it is, you know, and, and all the shows, all the music, everything that my readers are interested in, I'm immersing myself in, too. So uh, time, I guess, for as we think about our childhood in December would always come out with its man of the year and then mm-hmm. person of the year. And time has its 100 and glamour has its women of the year and fortune has its most powerful women. Is it sort of an imperative in the publishing industry to have a moment like this for major brands to say, this is who we want to put up on a pedestal? Is it a good business move for you? I think it's 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 probably a good business move if you have a good franchise. I mean, I think, you know, there are enough of them now that if it's not something that's known and really stands for something and stands out, it's not worth it um, because, you know, these events are complicated and, um, you know, not easy to produce. So, you know, I think Women of the Year succeeds not just because it's a countdown, it's a list, you know, it, it succeeds because of what it stands for, which is this idea of women having each other's backs. In your editor's note for the October issue, you talked about how you and fellow editors trekked out to Portland, Oregon to sit with President Obama at a coffee shop and had the interview and focused on the questions that you thought were on the minds of glamour readers. You said that Governor Romney uh, couldn't uh, participate because of, quote, scheduling issues. Uh, But you're clearly able to get on a transcontinental flight to go see the candidate where they are. Why do you think that Governor Romney wouldn't sit down with you? I don't know. You would have to ask him. You know, we we did have the privilege in 2008 of interviewing not just then Senator Obama, but also Senator John McCain, obviously the Republican candidate at the time. And in 2004, both um, President Bush and John Kerry participated in our election coverage. So, you know, why Governor Romney chose not to, I couldn't possibly say. But, you know, I I think it makes good sense for any candidate of, of either party to sit down with women's media in general. You know, women are 51% of the electorate at the moment, and, um, you know, we can certainly see that they're making a pretty big difference in many, many, many races. I'll be able to post the interview that you did with President Obama online, but in your editor's note, you also reflected that he seemed to be mm, more serious or somber or, or focused on what he had to do. What's the difference between the senator from Illinois that you talked to in 2008 and the guy that you saw in Portland earlier this year? Well, I think there are differences both in him and his demeanor and differences in the country. I mean, when I met with him in 2008, he was really just letting the country get to know him. And I think, you know, we certainly spent much more time then talking about his family, his female influences, his attitude toward toward women in general. And, you know, here we are, it's 2012. 
if you're male voter, female voter, any voter in this country going into the election, really you wanted to know, first and foremost, are you going to turn the economy around for me? And beyond that, you wanted to know where do you, the candidate, stand on the issues I care about, whether that's same-sex marriage or health care, in women's case, contraceptive access, really important issue for our young female readers. So I think it was, you know, it was maybe much a more gift, the way R- Governor Romney said about it. This yeah. Week. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was really just much more about, you know, him him explaining to voters where he stood and what he intended to do. It was a more sober, serious conversation this time around. But, you know, I think that's pretty appropriate considering where the country is. The backdrop against which you gave out this year's Women of the Year awards uh, at Carnegie Hall certainly ha- was not your usual uh, early winter in New York. Uh, her, uh, Superstorm Sandy came ab- came ashore. It sort of created some havoc in your hometown of Brooklyn and me in Lower Manhattan. But uh, Glamour really added an element of Sandy uh, responders to uh, the Women of the Year awards. What did you do? We brought in 20 women from around the region, all of whom were rescuers or relief workers or rebuilders during or after uh, the storm. And, you know, listen, these are women who have literally put their lives on the line. Some of them carried newborns down countless flights of stairs after hospitals were evacuated on the first night of the storm. Others are spending all day, every day, delivering hot meals, even though some of their own homes were devastated. And we thought, you know, if you're honoring women who are doing amazing things, no one deserves it more. So we assembled them. And uh, Mayor Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, who himself was incredibly active in storm relief, came and presented them with an award. And I have to tell you, Josh, it was the most, you know, heartwarming, incredible response. You just saw all of Carnegie Hall rise to its feet instantly and give these women a standing ovation. And it was really a wonderful thing. Did you see a future president in that mayor of Newark, New Jersey? He is very dynamic. So just to have to touch on one more thing, I w- watched the uh, the breakfast that you had with the Charles Townsend, the uh, chairman and CEO of Condé Nast, uh, earlier this fall. And I thought to myself, boy, I'd love it if Condé Nast were a public company because I'd love to hear this guy's quarterly uh, earnings mm-hmm. statements because he's so uh, his analysis of the business is so interesting. But one point he made was that you guys are giving away your content for a buck a month uh, in subscriber base. What's happening with the magazine industry and the the dichotomy between print and digital and where you see at least your your title going in the future? Well, I think, you know, what Chuck was referring to, um, you know, and I had asked him a question about if you could change one thing about the magazine industry and how it's operated over the last 10, 20 years, what would it be? And, you know, he said, well, for the most part, magazines have been in the business of giving away their content. Now, of course, it costs money to buy a magazine, but if you subscribe, it's usually in the neighborhood of $12, $15 a year, which is just a little over a dollar an issue. And considering what you're getting, that's pretty darn cheap, you know, if you compare it to something like your cable bill, which can be, you know, a hundred bucks some of the time and you don't, you're not really even paying attention to whether you're watching those shows or not. You know, magazines are a real deal. And part of what, you know, what I think a lot of companies, including ours, are trying to do right now is um, think about what more we can offer the reader um, as we move into digital. Glamour and most of the other Condé Nast magazines now are available in digital form. You can download them onto your iPad, your Kindle Fire, your Nook, um, and so forth. And um, you know we're able to give readers things like video, things like audio shows, the ability to shop just by touching an item and you know going directly to the website to buy it. And 
readers are showing us that they're willing to pay for that. And, um, you know, I think just finding new ways that we can connect to them is an incredibly healthy, important thing for our business right now. There was a warm embrace for what David Remnick has been able to do with the New Yorker iPad app. And mm-hmm. and I'm a user too. And as I'm thinking about, you know, when I'm traveling and I can throw it, throw five issues on my iPad rather than stick them in my bag and be able to see every page, every ad. Uh, are there plans to have Glamour have a similar platform? Well, Glamour is available um, on the iPad, as is the New Yorker. And the New Yorker is also available in iPhone form. And I suspect that many of our other magazines, um, hopefully ours included, will be at some point in the future as well. Last question. One of your honorees uh, in the Women of the Year this year was Annie Leibovitz. Mm-hmm. And uh, you probably sent her on many assignments for the magazine. Uh, and certainly she works uh, across the many titles in the Condé Nast platform. But whatever you might pay her for a day rate... Uh, it seems to me, are you are you cannibalizing at all the the beautiful value of what the the photo- the fashion photographer does when Cindy Levy goes to the front row of a catwalk and Instagrams uh, the latest fashion coming down the the aisle? Well, I think those are two completely different kinds of photography, and it's a big you know beautiful world out there, and there's room for both. I mean, with regard to Annie Leibovitz, uh, who we honored, she actually is a photographer for Vogue and Vanity Fair, not for Glamour. Um, I probably would have felt it was a little self-promotional to honor her had she been. Um, and and we primarily honored her for just being an incredible artist. I mean, she's really the outstanding portrait photographer of you know the last the last thirty or forty years. And um, you know the work that she does for Vogue and that she does for Vanity Fair is exquisite. Um, you know, I think. If you talk to her and many top photographers today, they themselves are interested also in Instagram and and Twitter. And, you know, I certainly would never argue that an Instagram photograph belongs, you know, on in the same breadth as an Annie Leibovitz original. um, But but they're both valid for doing two very different things in, in this world. You started out right out of Swarthmore, editorial assistant, and, and the titles you worked, Paris Review and others before you came to Glamour, uh, and the great training you got at Swarthmore. Do you find, how do you f- compare the talent for young writers who knock on your door and say, I want a job uh, now versus the way it might have been in the late 80s, early 90s? Well, you know, I think there's there's pluses and minuses. I mean, one of the really wonderful things that writers, young writers, have going for them today is that they don't need to come knock on my door to get experience writing. You could go start a blog. You can get experience as an editor or a writer in college. And in fact, I expect when people are, are coming to me, young people right out of college, I always look to see whether they have a blog already. Certainly most of them have social media presences. And, you, you know, you don't need anyone's permission if you're an 18-year-old aspiring writer to go get some writing experience. You can do it right now. And that's incredibly exciting. I think some of the challenges are that, um, you know, the sort of basic skills of reporting are probably not as thoroughly taught as they were you know, 20 years ago, I find one of the big challenges is just the silence that exists in offices now. Now that everybody is doing their work electronically, editors communicate with writers through email, editors communicate with the editor two cubicles down through email, and nobody's talking anymore. I often wonder, you know, how are the young 
writers and the young editors learning. I learned by eavesdropping. I would hear the editor in the next cubicle assigning a story over the phone, and that would teach me how to do it myself. And, you know, I'd sometimes hear her having great success and sometimes hear her striking out, and that would tell me what I didn't want to do. And, you know, I do worry that the over-reliance on electronics sometimes creates this this silence that makes it harder for, for young talent to learn. Cindy Levy, Editor-in-Chief, Glamour Magazine, in the December issue, uh, headlined 100 Party and Makeup Ideas. You can also read about the 10 Incredible Women of the Year for Glamour Magazine. Cindy, I hope you continue to focus uh, some of your reporting, I'm sure you will, on, on the political process and the role of women, and that by 2014 we'll increase those percentages of representation. I hope so, too. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Josh. My second guest is someone most will not have heard of, but I think you'll find his perspective fascinating. If you're looking for some ways to rationalize Mitt Romney's defeat, it would be wise to listen to John Ekdahl. The funny thing is, for me, a guy who considers himself pretty plugged in, election night, John would have been the last guy I'd think to ask. In fact, I had no idea of his political affiliation. To give you some context, this goes back to the founding of Polyoptics back in 2009. Eleven years after leaving the White House, I was struggling to figure out how to share all that I'd learned about visual communications in the theater of politics. I decided to develop a lecture, but first I needed a name. In some conference room during a meeting, I started scribbling mashups of descriptive words, hoping to find an original construct. The Xerox for campaign imagery. Combine politics and optics, the nexus of candidates out in public and the media that cover them, and you have polyoptics. I wasn't entirely original in this sort of obsession on the fringe of a major subject. A guy named Paul Lucas, a past guest on this show, had built a brand around UniWatch, the obsessive study of athletics aesthetics. Equipment, uniforms, insignia, typography, stitching, everything about the theater of sports except the athletic contest itself. I love that site. Paul's writing and his site are infective. For polyoptics, I had to have one like it, so I dive in forensically and learn that Paul's web developer is a firm named Jetty Web Solutions out of New Jersey. Some back and forth, and I'm in touch with Jetty Web's John Ekdahl. We talk, and a few weeks later, polyoptics is born. Now, John and I remain in sporadic contact in the years that follow. I, I learn he's moved to Florida. Lower taxes, I think, is why he tells me he's moved. I don't give it a second thought. All I know is that when I need a cosmetic fix to the site or have another show to put online, John will eventually get around to it. He's great, building me a simple, sturdy site. Those who visited know what I mean. John's politics? I had no idea. So imagine my surprise on November 8th as I'm trolling around reading stories about why Obama won and why Romney lost. John Ekdahl's name keeps popping up in posts, tweets, and stories by major reporters and pundits. John Ekdahl, spelled E-K-D-A-H-L. The name is not common. I know this guy. He's a web developer, my web developer. Two years working together, we never once talked politics. Why, for goodness sake, is he in these stories? John, it turns out, was a darn dedicated volunteer in Jacksonville for Romney for president. If the race was going to be close, Jacksonville and Orlando, along with Toledo and Cincinnati, might be ground zero. John's assignment on election day? He's going to be manning one of the major precincts in Jacksonville using a Romney special weapon called Orca. 
Right now, I'm reading Evan Thomas's book on Eisenhower's leadership in the Cold War. In response to Sputnik, the U.S. had something called Corona. It kept crashing on the launch pad. As I read John's account on the Ace of Spades blog, the unmitigated disaster known as Project Orca, I kept thinking back to the effort to counter the Soviets' lead in space. And I'll let John pick up the story from there. John, welcome to Polyoptics. How are you? What was Project Orca, and why did you get involved, and why? Um, Project Orca was uh, essentially um, a program to try to digitize what was a decades-old process of uh, voter strike lists. Um, so, you know, What's a voter strike list? Basically, how they've been doing it for a long time, and this is both Democrats and Republicans, they, they both do this. They, have, they send someone to poll watch, and as voters come in and vote, you cross them off the list, you strike them. Um, every hour or so, someone will come by from the campaign, um, the local campaign office, grab your strike list, take it back to the phone banks, and then start calling the people who have yet to vote. Um, this is one of the major get-out-the-vote efforts on Election Day. Um, and, and like I said, both sides have been doing it for a long time. Is politics in your family something you know about? Yeah, yeah. I've been I've followed politics pretty closely, although you and I have, have not really spoken too much about that. <laughs> and your dad? Uh, my dad is a mayor in um, a small New Jersey town. And we'll get to how he's doing after Sandy in a second, but keep yeah. going. Um, so this, this process was uh, designed to um, take it away from the local uh, communities and, and organizations and, and kind of centralize it in the Romney campaign headquarters up in Boston. Um, so instead of doing all the paper rolls and you know, um, using a pen to strike this off, you'd use a phone program to slide someone's name from not voted to voted. That information would be instantly sent back to campaign headquarters so that it'd have data about you know, precinct turnouts and um, the people who haven't voted. If, uh, if some precincts were falling behind, they'd uh, make sure to get some campaign resources to get um, those people out to vote. How did you get corralled into this, and, and, and what was the lead-up time? Um, I, got, I signed up about... I would say about two weeks before election day, and it was attractive to me because it was such a, um, a you know, a technical project. So I thought it would it would really uh, be a fun thing to take part in. Um, and they they had begun to push out, you know, trying to get people to sign up. I think probably about a month before election day. So uh, did you have any? You're a web developer. Did you have any doubts in in how they were sort of communicating with you? How how did they tell you what you needed to do? Um, I, I had some immediate doubts because when they started to set up conference calls to get everyone on the phone, and that was one of the first failings, is that a lot of the volunteers were never able to connect to these conference calls uh, for whatever reason. So the ones that I participated in, um, you know, I, I was a little unsure. I've, I've heard enough from, um, you know, marketers and, uh, and those industry types to, to be concerned when I'm not hearing you know, technical uh, details of, of these projects. So I had, I had some serious concerns, some being, you know, has this been stress tested? If you're going to have 30,000 plus volunteers trying to use this system at the same time, are you sure your network can handle it? Um, is it secure enough so that it can handle, you know, a DDoS attack, which is a denial of service or something of the like? And these questions were never really answered except vaguely as in, yes, you know, we've, we've got this, we can handle it. It was touted as an app. Was it really an app? No, that was the other part of the confusion. Um, you know, and I, I saw this a lot on Twitter. Um, people came to me actually uh, for, for help because I had uh, I had said on Twitter that that I was going to be participating in it. But during the sessions, people came away confused. They they didn't know 
they kept billing it as a web app. And that's, you know, for people that aren't that technical, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be using words anywhere close to app because it confuses people. So a lot of volunteers were trying to download this supposed app from iTunes or from the Android market, and it didn't exist. It was just a, a mobile-optimized website. Meaning that you could take it out, take your iPad out or a laptop or a smartphone, and you should be able to get on this thing with proper formatting. Right, and you're just going to go straight to the browser. There's, there's no native app at all. So what else do you need to, to go to the polls that day, and what's your, what's your November 6th like, and, and af- actually the evening of November 5th for you? Um, it, it was pretty hectic. Um, that, that was the other major failing of, of the training session was that they just, they just never really communicated how important it was to have a poll-watching certificate. Um, this is, you know, you have to have this to be able to, to watch the polls, and they never really said that. The laws require that if you're going to be within a certain number of feet of the door to the election, the polling place, you need to be properly uh, accredited by the local election board, right? Correct. And they, and they had given the impression that this was, you know, they had signed us up for that. And so many of us were, were wondering where these certificates were, wh- when they would arrive. Some people got them in, in email. I heard that some people went to their local victory centers and got them. I never received mine. So when I showed up to, to, on election day to work at 630 in the morning, um, I was immediately turned away. And, um, you know, I frustrated, I went back home and I tried to get on their helplines. I tried the, you know, the technical helpline, the legal helpline that were set up, and it just, it was busy for hours. But before even that, I mean, you're a, you're in your early mid-30s. Uh, you know how to deal with stuff like this. What did the, what did Project Orca require these, I guess, 30,000 volunteers to do the night before? Yeah, they had, uh, they had, they said they had about 35,000, I think it was, the final count, uh, volunteers. And they, my, uh, my packet, they were calling it, it was a PDF packet of about 60 pages arrived in my inbox at 4, 4 p.m. Uh, the day before election. And um, I was expected to print out the 60 pages of, of, doc, of voter rolls and instructions. Um, and, you know, I didn't mention this in my post, but GOP poll watchers tend to skew a little older. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these are people that they live for it. They do it every election cycle. Um, and those are who you were sending these packets out to, to expect, you know, older people to know that a PDF was coming to them and also to be able to print out 60 pages on their home computer. It was just really short-sighted. I feel like 60 pages on my home computer would utterly crash the thing, and it's not designed to even print more than, like, you know, two pages at a time. Yeah, and, you know, naturally I'm set up to be able to handle that, but of course, but of course on uh, the night before election... Um, my printer ran out of magenta, so I couldn't even print in black and white on my HP printer. You know, I'm sure everyone's had stories like that, so I have to go running out at, you know, 10.30 at night to find a Kinko's. I mean, the whole thing was just so poorly planned. All right, so you've, you've taken a day off of work. You're planning to be there all day. Then what happens? So, I showed, like I said, I, I showed up, and they, they booted me from it. I, I come back home, and I, I literally called for hours um, with, with no response whatsoever. I have found out since then, and this is at least what's being told to me, is that their entire network at headquarters had crashed. Um, and they were using voice over IP phones that were um, not properly set up. And so they had all sorts of communication issues uh, from the start up at headquarters. Well, so thanks to the NHL strike and the Celtics being on the road, they were using the TD Garden. And how, what were the pipes like going to that place? Um, I found out, and you know, this is just things that people have have shared with me privately, um, that they never even informed Comcast 
that there was going to be a spike in traffic on Election Day. So Comcast sees the huge jump in traffic and, and cuts their line because they thought it was a denial of service attack. So that was just one of the things. They never, you know, I've, I've heard from people that they had their entire, uh, you know, all the servers that they used to, to house this program were in-house in that building. So when they cut the, uh, when they cut the Internet connection, it basically severed all communication with any of the volunteers for, you know, a number of hours. I think it was 90 minutes or a little bit more than that. So in the entire span of Election Day, November 6th, you're in Jacksonville and you're assigned to your precinct. Are you able to send one bit of data up to Boston? Well, I, for whatever reason, they didn't have issues with signing in um, from the Florida server. So I could actually log in on my phone and see the voter rolls. It's just that I, I couldn't do anything with it because I wasn't allowed at the polls. So um, I found out from, you know, from other, other volunteers in other states that they couldn't even log in. They were sent the wrong credentials. Um, the server wasn't taking them. Um, there was a report on Breitbart that um, the entire state of Colorado was down most of the day. So they didn't have any data. Um, you Colorado know, wasn't an important state, was it? <laughs> no, I mean it, these are the states we're talking about: uh, Florida, Colorado, and it. You probably saw in my post that um, in the instruction pack that I was told to bring with me, it had a checklist of things to bring. And couple, on, a couple of chairs. Yeah, and on my <laughs> checklist, it did. They left out poll watcher poll watcher certificate, and instead they put chair on there twice. So. You know, I, I just can't believe that they would send out this documentation without even, you know, QAing it or spell-checking it, nothing. Um, and later on, I had found out that it wasn't, you know, it might have been just Florida that had that problem. And someone from Virginia sent me their packet, and it had a different uh, item on there twice and still no poll watcher certificate. So they, they screwed it up all over the place. But hey, wait, John, they say that 91% of counties gave, gave Boston data that day. <laughs> yeah, uh, Zach Mofat has been uh, spinning wildly on this. Um, it, you, have to, you have to look specifically at what he's saying. Um, and my suspicion is that uh, he's kind of fudging numbers there because he says 91% of counties reported. What he doesn't say is precincts. And, you know, in, in my county, I think there's something like 30 precincts. In Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, there's 1,300 precincts. So, you know, using his qualifier, if one precinct out of the 1,300 gives data in Allegheny County, he's counting Allegheny County as having given him data. So <laughs> you have to watch what he's saying very carefully. So at least you can account for two votes for Romney in Florida. Yeah, my wife and myself, but that's about it. <laughs> but uh, but in the response, you know, uh, the response was that I think uh, we achieved in large part what we set out to do in the swing states in terms of our electorate. Your view? Um, well, I mean, I don't know what his goal was then. If his goal was to lose, then it, it went swimmingly. Um, I just, you know, I, it's been so frustrating listening to them, their responses to all this. Um, they refuse to take any blame for it. No one can even find out who is in charge of this project. They won't say. Um, so there's there's a lot left. There's a lot of meat left on this bone in this story, for sure. So what might 30,000, 35,000 people who are uh, really uh, strongly committed to Mitt Romney and the, and the GOP nominee and, and Paul Ryan that day, what might, them, what might they have been able to do otherwise if they weren't trying to log on to Project Orca? Well, I mean, they could have been doing anything else. And that's, and, you know, as much as this project failed, that's the other 
um, sad part of, about it is all the all the wasted effort on people's part. They could have been phone banking. They could have been walking door to door. You know, they could have been volunteering at their victory center. They could have been doing anything else. Instead, they were, you know, frustrated and locked out. And you know, like myself, I just I just went home and followed you know followed everything on Twitter. Tried to help people. But um, I can't even imagine how frustrated everyone else was in the field. So you are one of 35,000 people or 30,000 people, um, and you're a web developer in Florida, and beside your commitments to places like UniWatch and Polyoptics, you have a lot of other things to do. What made you decide to sit down in front of that screen and, and write uh, your post for Ace of Spades? Um, well, after, <laughs> after uh, I got through Wednesday with... Um, you know, I needed a, <laughs> a lot of couch time on Wednesday. So on Thursday, I just decided to um, kind of just put all my frustrations to print and, and tell exactly what happened because, you know, my ultimate goal in this is to make sure it doesn't happen again. And um, I think the only way to do that is to just be honest about what the failings were and, and try to find solutions um, going forward. So so what happens? Are you are you amazed? I mean, you've written for Ace of Spades a lot. You you post on UniWatch a lot about things that you know that uh, Paul's followers are, are are doggedly focused on. But this is sort of a basic ground game field work in, in a presidential campaign. What's the reaction and how does the word spread? Um, the reaction has been good. I, I've been picked up by a, a lot of places I never thought I'd see my name in print. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of blowback so far, I think, um, specifically to, to, to Zach Moffat and Rich Beeson, so, you know, so far. Um, we'll see where it leads, but it's, it's certainly getting a lot of attention, and, and, as it should be. So you press the, the publish button on your post. Uh, you, you have about 1,200 Twitter followers at the time, and I'm seeing people that I follow, people like John Podoritz and Jake uh, Tapper and and other you know well-known names. How does this sort of spread virally through the sort of reporting nexus in, in Twitter? Um, well, I think it you know because it was such a a personal account and it wasn't um, a partisan account. You know, it was certainly about a Republican and politics, but it wasn't, you know, you read my take on it. It wasn't, you know, we lost the election because of this demographic or anything like that. It was just my technical account of it. And um, so in that respect, it spread not only through the conservative um, media, but also through the neutral media and then over to some some of the left wing people who... Daily Beast. Yeah, who have engaged me on it. And, um, you know, with few exceptions, um, you know, everyone's been really polite and nice. Um, you know, even even the left wing people are just you know kind of shake their heads and say, "I can't believe you had to go through that," and um, what a terrible digital operation they were running, and things like that. So, um, I think that's really why it spread so quickly is because it it didn't it didn't have a partisan bent to it. So, uh, the Romney for President project was known as Project Orca. Uh, I think, as the Daily Beast reported, uh, the corollary in the in the Obama camp was known as Project Narwhal, uh, which is a Arctic animal, uh, sort of a, a gentle beast, uh, but who, which is preyed upon by the killer whale, the orca. Now, as you've been sort of studying the aftermath of both campaigns and the uh, uh, appraisal given by people like Time Magazine and prior uh, uh, Business Week, as it talked about the data mining operation of the Obama campaign, are you? What's your impression of how Chicago ran their GOTV and technology effort? Well, I mean, I think we can all look back and just be amazed at how how well it worked. Um, 
he was able to get turnout from places that that a lot of people never saw coming. Um, but I think you know I was, I was going to write more about this, but his victory really, if you want to go back, started in 2004 with Howard Dean. Right. Um, believe, believe it or not, um, Joe Trippy. Yeah, when when those guys lost, um, they really put an effort into into going digital, and they started a firm called Blue State Digital, and um, they worked very closely. In fact, you know, I think it, it was all kind of internal towards the end. Um, Obama used that operation uh, brilliantly. Um, aside from, and it's kind of funny because in 2008, um, Obama had a similar Orca-like um, program, and it failed almost identically. Um, so it's kind of funny that Romney's response to it was to just pick up an old, you know, program and try to copy it, and they got the same exact failure that that Obama had. The only difference being that. With Obama um, in 2008, they actually had a backup of going to the paper rolls, and Romney didn't really have that set up. But you've seen other examples of sort of Romney imitation of Obama technology efforts that either sort of were just not quite up to snuff. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, look at the report. I think BuzzFeed had it where they they lifted, uh, for for Romney's campaign, they lifted identical language from Barack Obama's uh, website. So I, you know, I don't know what kind of digital operation they were running. It certainly leaves a lot to be desired, from my perspective. Um, you know, certainly for that. If you if you remember, they lost, they launched that um, that application Romney did that misspelled America. Right. Remember that one? Immersia. Immersia, and um, they had that VP app that somehow they managed to scoop themselves, and it didn't. You know, you were supposed to be the first one alerted to. Romney's pick for VP, and the news agencies had it before the app did. Um, so there was there was a lot of failure there. I, I'm still seeing people on Twitter saying that, "Hey, my uh, you know my T-shirt and my bumper sticker just arrived today." So even their web store was behind. <laughs> so clearly, John, what I know of you is you must be a small government guy. You leave New Jersey for Florida for uh, fairer, in your view, tax treatment. Um, you talk about how. Project Orca was to use sort of the embodiment of a big government centralized solution where maybe the old school uh, uh, approach might have worked better. Uh, and then you are also in admiration of the way uh, Team Obama and Chicago, going back to Howard Dean, managed to harness new technology and, and use uh, every means at their disposal to win. Does this change your sort of ideology about who should be occupying the White House and taking the inauguration in January, or, or ideologic ideology doesn't fit into all this, and they just were better technologists. Um, I don't think it's it's not going to change my ideology. The only thing that it would change is my perception a little bit of, of Romney as this um, wizard of management, um, because he clearly chose the wrong people. Um, you know, and I, I spoke to someone that said. It's hard to blame the nominee. These guys, when they're running for president, these guys barely have time to eat. So it's not like he's, you know, watching closely over each decision made on the campaign. But um, he clearly was ill-served by his advisors. I, I can say that with confidence. Um, as I sort of di- try to dissect your tone and some of your tweets, you know, you're you're frustrated by the. Uh, election result you're thinking about four years hence are you uh, trying to think about the next few years in a sort of nonpartisan can we all get a long way or are you thinking about how to how to reverse the problems of 2012 and win next time um, you know I haven't even wrapped my head around that yet I'm still you know we're still trying to get to the bottom of 
of all this that went wrong. And, and just the amount of money that it, that's involved here is, is offensive. I mean, we're talking in the order of more than $120 million that were sent to consultants in this campaign. And, I, you know, I think that a lot of people who donated their time and, and their money um, deserve answers. So I think, you know, despite what's happening, you know, in the next four years, I think that's been my ultimate goal is to get to the bottom of that first. So uh, in terms of your own home state, you have a, a senator named Marco Rubio. He might uh, be the answer to some of the demographic issues that confront the Republican Party. Is he a guy who you find some promise for for 2016? Sure, I do. I'm, I'm reluctant to put a senator on the top of the ticket, I think. Um, generally, that doesn't seem to work out very well. Um, in Obama's case, of course, he ran against another senator, so that was default. But... Um, yeah, I see. I see promise in him. You can see that he's. Uh, I think he's positioning himself um, with that in mind. He's kind of. He decided not to take any of the leadership positions in the Senate, which I think was a move. So he, you know, he couldn't be tied to whatever gridlock is is going on there. Um, but I think you know Jindal. Um, I mean, it's it's still so early, but um, you Jindal, like the way he he comported himself this week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some other. You never know. People, people's name names pop up late. Um, in I've your home, in your home state of New Jersey, tell us about how your dad and your family's doing in Rumson and and the performance of the governor there. Um, it's hard. You know, it's really hard to tell. I know he's working his butt off, um, but it's it's hard to tell who's performing what since you get such sporadic stories um, of what. I know people are still without power now. Um, my parents only got power back. I think two days ago it was. Um, my brother's apartment is uh, condemned at this point. So uh, I know the cleanup. My, my brother is pretty much just, he's just volunteering with cleanup now. He's not, he's not even working. So, um, you know, I think it's going about as well as, as it could go. Um, it, it's just hard to judge being on the outside. And there was at least one great uh, victory this fall with uh, Paul Lucas's effort to keep advertising off NBA uniforms, right? Yeah, and <laughs> I'm not sure... If that's uh, that might rear its ugly head again, but for now, yeah, it was a victory. Tell us about uh, your involvement with UniWatch and Paul, and and how you've helped nurture that uh, brand into prominence. Um, it's I went back. He I, I was always a loyal reader of his, and um, back in 2005, I had approached him about maybe taking what was you know once a week or once every two week uh, column. And launching a blog, and he, you know, at first he was really reluctant because he didn't think that he had enough content to run, you know, once a day article about sports uniforms. And and sure enough, there's there's plenty there. Um, it's it's pretty wild how how much he covers. Um, just his, you know, just his ticker alone is uh, is you know hundreds of words. So, well, from the aesthetics of athletics to the uh, to the plumbing of. Uh, presidential campaign get out the vote efforts. Uh, John Ekdahl, you continue to surprise me as you did uh, 24 hours after election day. I admire your effort to both put on your shoes and volunteer and spend the whole day stumping for the candidate of your choice. I, I feel for you that it didn't work out on November 6th and I admire what you did to to share in an open and transparent way what, what you experienced. And it's been it's been instructive for us all and certainly for people who on both sides of the aisle who expect to run campaigns in 2014 and 2016 that uh, you cannot take technology or the testing of it for granted. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been great. Thanks, John. Have a great night. You too.
That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.